We're going to have two readings this morning. Uh, The first one comes from the book of Genesis, and I will appreciate it if you turn there. Genesis chapter 4. If you can turn there. I'm reading from the NIV Bible. Genesis chapter 4. The second one will be Matthew chapter 5. Will you please listen to the word of God? The Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible. It's authoritative. It's God's wonderful and glorious word to us, to us, his people. Genesis 4, verses 1 to 8. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then if you don't mind turning to Matthew 5, and if you can keep your Bible open at Matthew 5, we're going to read verses 21 to 26. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you'll not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God, and we give thanks to God for his word. Let's pray again. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And this morning we pray for the speaker, we pray for ourselves as listeners. Father, send forth your spirit to help us, Open the speaker's lips to speak faithfully and to be true to your word and help us 
as listeners, including the preacher, to listen, to hear, to understand, and to apply your word to our hearts and lives as we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been working through, week by week, the Sermon on the Mount. And this week I come to this particular passage. So no one has said to me that there's somebody in this church that has an argument or a fight or is at war with somebody else in the church. No one said that. And I say that just that you understand. This is the next sermon in the series I'm preaching through. And I've entitled the message, The Heart and the Will. See, God wants a clean heart, but at the same time, God wants a biblically responsive will. And I want to, by way of introduction, set before you two examples, two illustrations that point to anger and unhappiness and unkindness and however we're going to respond to it. And the first one deals with road rage. Um, I come from South Africa, as you are aware, and out there, um, the state transport system, the railways, the bus services, has collapsed. And due to this, um, we find ourselves in a predicament. How do you get millions of people transported every morning and night to work? back home again. And so we have what is called a taxi industry. These are small buses, minibuses. They are 12, 16, 32 seaters. Um, they have absolutely no regard for red traffic lights, stop streets, solid lines. They even drive on the, the curbside on the sidewalk. They will drive on the wrong side of the road. They have no fear for the police. Um, because the police are either brothers or friends, and of course there's a bribe, so they have no fear. And the way they drive, pushing you off the road, banging into your car, makes you angry. It's an extreme illustration I'm giving you. The other illustration is um, during the apartheid years in South Africa, which is 30 years ago, up to 30 years ago, um, they, the revolutionists would sing a song called, and I'll tell you what the word means, kill the boor, kill the farmer. So the word boor is an Afrikaans word for a farmer, a white farmer. So that was 30 years ago. But recently, uh, in fact, just over a week ago, one of the young revolutionists stood on a platform and with his communist sign, his salute, he was dancing and chanting the song, mobilizing, encouraging the people, motivating the people. And as he would sing, he would sing, shoot the boor, shoot the farmer. And on Thursday, a young farmer and his family were returning to their small holdings. And as they arrived there, they were ambushed with men with AK-47 rifles. And they didn't steal anything. They didn't take anything. But they loaded all of the ammunition into the farmer and they killed him. I'm just giving you an illustration, and I would like you to keep things like anger and bitterness and hatred and jealousy uh, in your mind, not in your heart, but in your mind as we work our way through this particular message this morning. And I want to map the message like this for you. It's the heart and the will. 
I want to speak about divine authority, divine teaching, divine love, and divine reconciliation. And the first thing that I want to draw to your attention for consideration is divine authority. Now, we must never ever forget who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And on earth he was God incarnate. He's the great I am of the Bible. And, and in the Sermon on the Mount, over and over he's referring to the Old Testament. And he knew the Old Testament well because he gave the Old Testament. If you look at Matthew, you'll notice it starts with the, in five, chapter 5, it starts with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is saying to us, this is the type of person that is a citizen within the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say that we must be salt and we must be light. And of course the salt is preserving the morality in the world. The light is pushing back the darkness in the world. And then he gets to the next section where in verse 17 to 20 he affirms the permanence of the Old Testament. He didn't come to annul the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. And now look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to murder. Who would Jesus be referring to here? He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. He wasn't referring to Moses. He was referring to the commentators that the scribes and the Pharisees would be using. They used their commentators to interpret the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, basically, you are following erroneous teaching. Look at verse 22. Look how he continues. It was said to you, now he says, but I tell you. And again and again in Matthew 5, but I tell you. He's saying that he is superior to the elders who wrote the commentaries because they used extremely superficial explanations of the word of God. Now look at verse 21 again. And you can see the accusation coming here. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to murder. So at first sight, when you look at that, it, it sounds so good. There's nothing wrong with it. The sixth commandment says, you shall not murder. Other places in the Old Testament, in the law, it says that if you murder, you're going to right there. They didn't go further than that. They didn't take the word, they didn't expound the word that the people could understand it. So Jesus is actually saying that there's a huge difference between the act of murder and the character of murder. He's saying the elders that you Pharisees are using, their words, they did not go all the way. Their interpretation is incomplete. They didn't apply their minds. They didn't dig deep enough. They left their people with an inadequate understanding of the word of God. And if they applied their minds, they would have seen that there was anger and hatred and bitterness and spite lurking in the shadows of the deed. They never considered the motive for the act. And Jesus is about to tell them that wrath and anger are punishable just as murder is punishable. Our yardstick, as you are so aware, is the word of God, the Bible. 
And we need people to interpret it for us. Like Richard. Like pastor teachers. Like elders. We need people to interpret. That's why we have all the commentaries, the lexicons, the seminaries, the professors, to, to, to teach people how to teach the word of God, to interpret the word of God. You see, we don't want people to come along and say, this is what the word of God says and stops there. We want people to come along and say to us, this is what the word of God says, and this is how you must go and apply the word of God. Otherwise, there's not going to be any hard change. Our motto must always be God's word above all things, because that's our life as a Christian. The second matter that I want you to consider and reflect upon this morning is divine teaching. Look at verse 21 and 2 together. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now we need to ask the question, where does murder start? I know there are many murders in America. I know that. In South Africa, we have more than that. It's all the time. James 4.1 says to us, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James is saying that, that the whole sinful act, whatever it is, starts in the heart. And we must understand that. You see, it's not the road rage culprit. It's not the provocation of the revolutionist singer. It's not the news media. And they report all sorts of things, as you know. You come after me, I'll come after you. It's not those things. It's the heart. And that is what Jesus is getting to. It's the heart. And he illustrates it by using three words. The first word is angry. That's the condition of the heart. The second word is raka. And you know that this is an Aramaic expression. One of abuse. And it actually means empty. And we get the concepts of blockhead, empty head, good for nothing from that. And then there's the word fool. And this simply means idiot or moron. You see, we can't consider Jesus' teaching without getting into his explanation of anger. We cannot miss words like raka and fool. We cannot miss that anger within the heart leads to calling people blockhead and empty head and good for nothing and idiot and moron and, and all sorts of other adjectival phrases. We can't do that. So what is the backdrop to all of this? Of course it's the heart, but there's something more. There's the understanding or the lack of the understanding of the word of God. And as an example, let me give you Genesis 1.26, where God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Granted, Adam fell into sin. And that tarnished his image and his likeness. 
But that image and that likeness, you cannot remove because it's part of the creation of man. So when you look at a person that is immoral and unethical and, and, and really bad in their behavior, that person still has that glimmer of God's image and likeness in him or her. So to call profanity upon somebody such as blockhead and empty head and moron and idiot and fool is calling those words on the image and likeness of God in the person. And I want to show you how serious this is. Look at verse 22 again. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. And, and we would miss the meaning of subject to judgment and the meaning of answerable to a court unless we understand the meaning of in danger of a fire of hell. See, the word hell comes from the word Gehenna. And that referred to the valley of Hinnom. And in the valley of Hinnom, there was a fire going all the time. And this takes us all the way back to 2 Kings 23. And we meet up with a young king by the name of Josiah. And the Josiah has been moved by God. And he's bringing in reforms to Judah as the state and Jerusalem as the high city where the priests and the temple is. And one of the reforms was in 2 Kings 23.10. He desecrated Topheth which is in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. So no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. So this Topheth was this huge building, like a statue shrine with this big mouth and a hollow inside and at the bottom there were flames. There was a fire burning all the time. And parents, even Israelite people, who had turned their back on God. Even kings would take their children, their young children and babies, put them on their arms like this, and let them roll into this mouth and fall down into the fire and get incinerated, get burnt to death. That's the backdrop to these words. In Jesus' day, there was a rubble dump that burnt day and night. And Jesus is holding this illustration before the people. And he wants them to grasp the seriousness and the continuousness and the relentlessness of the fires of hell. He holds that before them. And what is Jesus doing? He's pointing past the sentence that would be pronounced in the Sanhedrin, the sentence of death and he's pointing to the horror of endless agony in eternal hell that's what he's doing Luke describes Jesus' words in chapter 16 not a parable but an account and he presents to us a nameless rich man and then he presents to us a poor beggar by the name of Lazarus and they both died. And the rich man goes to hell not because he was rich, but because his God was wealth. 
And the poor beggar goes to heaven, not because he was poor and sickly, disadvantaged, but because his God was the true God. And in Luke 16, 22 to 4, we read, The time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called to him, Father Abram, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this place, in this fire. Just think for a moment. There's a glass of water. Put your finger in it and you lift it out. And that little drop, that's all you wanted on his tongue. It was so excruciating. Even that teeny little bit of water would give him a little bit of comfort, and he was denied it. You see, it's the reality of what John writes about in Revelation 20, 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. My friends, it's staggering that this, this sin... That starts in the heart, that has these wicked emotions of bitterness and anger and jealousy and rage, Jesus is saying is equivalent in punishment to that of murder. So, so you see, uh, Jesus is providing us with correct exegesis. He interprets the sixth commandment correctly. And unless there's genuine repentance. The consequences are horrendous. And then the third matter that I want to present to you for consideration and reflection is divine love. Now, Jesus has authority. He provides us with divine exposition, divine interpretation, divine teaching, because he wants us to understand that those created in the image and likeness of God God requires them to practice divine love. Now look at verses 23 and 4. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother or sister had something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled with them, then come and offer your gift. So the principle that's arising here is that the children of God must be filled with love. We mustn't have hatred and jealousy and bitterness in the heart. The heart must be filled with love. Now, remember that what Jesus is saying in the passage must be linked to the question he was asked about the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? And in Mark 12, he says, the greatest commandment is to love our God Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's astounding, isn't it? You see, you can't love your neighbor until you love God. And you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. And Jesus is saying the way you love God is all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, he's saying there's an emotional there's a spiritual, intellectual, and a physical dimension to this love. See, loving God isn't easy. It's hard work. 
And in the same way, loving other people is hard work. It's not easy. Listen to what 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says. This is profound. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. That really pulls the carpet from us. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And then verse 21 says, and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must, it's emphatic, must also love his brother and sister. So coming back to Matthew 5, the picture that we see is God speaking about somebody bringing an offering into the house of worship. And the proper way when you bring the offering is to focus on God and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and to come to God with love in your heart, love for God. In other words, the act of worship is a loving act. But at the same time, loving and worshipping and offering to God includes a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, a neighbor, a friend. And so whilst worshiping, you recall a dysfunctional relationship, a brother or a sister. And you leave worship and you go and be reconciled and then you return to worship. So he was a child. He came from the rural areas his father was a janitor, looking after an apartment building in the city, came to live with his dad. He soon became a teenager, and as a 13-year-old, he got into bad habits and bad ways and bad friends, and soon he became a leader of a gang, carrying a piece of iron, a gun. Now, I don't know if you know anything about guns in South Africa, literally it's banned, whether it's licensed or unlicensed. And he would go into shops, hold them up, get whatever cooling chips, chocolates he wanted, people on the streets, he would rob them. All of a sudden he found that in our teen church, they gave cookies out after the ministry. So every Sunday morning he started coming to teen church. Unfortunately, the leader was evangelistic and the gospel was presented over and over and over. And this young man heard the gospel. He went for cookies. He got the gospel. He started to come to church. The day he came to church, the same passage, not the same sermon, the same passage I was preaching on. And it hit him like a ton of bricks, stabbed him in his heart. How he got the money to get a taxi and travel three and a half hours to the rural area. He went home and he went to his older brother and he reconciled with him because they had been fighting. And then he came back to church the next week and he said to me, Don, that passage led me to faith in Christ. You see, this is the picture here. You can't want to love God and worship God when there's hatred and anger and bitterness and jealousy and unkindness in your heart. So the fourth matter, 
that I want you to reflect upon very briefly is divine reconciliation. So verses 23, 24 is about love. 25, 26 is about reconciliation. Look at them. <clears throat> Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge will hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you'll not get out until you have paid the last penny. So the picture changes here. And remember that it's not whether you are right or wrong. It's not whether you have a debt to pay. It's not whether there's an just an aggrievance. Sort matters out before going to court. Whether it's the state court or whether it's the church court, sort matters out. Because the consequences could be devastating for you. See, the point is you're a Christian. Go and make right. Go and prevent a court case. Years ago, I finished my sermon preparation. Friday night was about 8, 9 o'clock. Packed my briefcase, left the office. And as I got into the parking area, I saw at the entrance of the driveway there was a tow truck. I don't know what you call them, yeah? These vehicles that pull other cars after a crash. And um, we call them vultures. And the reason we call them vultures is because they tune into the, 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 the police um, channels and they can hear accident at such and such a place they race there. Uh, that's why we call them vultures. Anyway, so there's this one parked in the entrance of the driveway and another three parked outside. And I need to get out, so I go and I say to the young man, I said, would you mind moving your vehicle? I want to come out here. Started swearing at me, got very angry with me. He went and he took a chain from the back of his truck and he wanted to beat me up, so I closed the gate. When I closed the gate, he became even more enraged. He reversed the truck and then ran the gate and ran the gate and ran the gate until he broke it down and he broke down the pillars, brick pillars. He wanted to ride into me. He wanted to kill me. When this happened, his friends got a fright and drove off. When he saw he was all alone, he drove off, but I got his number plate. So I contacted the police and I reported it. They got hold of him and locked him up. Monday morning comes along and there he appears in my office with his lawyer. He's crying. He's really apologetic. He says to me, Pastor, I was drinking with my friends. I wasn't myself. I misbehaved. I did wrong. Forgive me. I'm pleading with you. If you charge me with Damage to private property, if you charge me with public violence, if you charge me with attempted murder, I'm going to jail. Who's going to look after my little wife and child? Of course, you should, should have thought of that before, but nevertheless, I'm a Christian. I see there's remorse in his heart. I forgive him on two conditions. Repair the damage, and secondly, I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with you. I explained the gospel to him. He seemed to understand it. He promised me he would repair the wall, which he did. He promised he would go and take his wife to church. He spoke Afrikaans. And you see, that's what God wants. God wants reconciliation. 
And so we became friends. God, divi- God gives to you and me divine reconciliation and he expects us to give reconciliation to others. That's true Christian love. You see, the other option must be avoided. Just think of the story Jesus is telling. Who's the judge? It's God. What is the court? Oh, that's the judgment day. But who's the officer? You see, the word officer there is used of the man who was in charge of what they called the under rowers in the ancient rowing boats, those sailing boats. So you had three tiers of rowers. So the guys with the shortest oars sat right at the bottom. And this man who was in charge of them, this officer, he would have his whip. Now they were criminals. They could have rotted in jail or they could have done that. And they were doing this. And if they let up, he would whip them and whip them. And if he whipped one, he whipped more than one because they were difficult to reach. And he would keep the temper up. Or, 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 to move the boat forward, forward. It was living hell there. That's the officer that Jesus is referring to. You know what he's saying? Reconcile before the groveling pit of hell. So let's apply the message. Very provocative, this passage, extremely provocative, but I believe we can say thank you, God, for teaching us this passage so that we can forgive and reconcile. Thank you, God. I've got six very brief applicatory points. They are in the shape of a question. Is there time for anger? Often people say, well, Jesus became angry, so that gave me the license to be angry. So Jesus was angry. He was angry with the merchants selling their wares in the temple grounds, money being exchanged. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, but it's a marketplace. Of course he was angry. He called the Pharisees blind fools. Why? The way they interpreted and taught the word of God, they led people to hell and not to heaven. So Jesus is exercising righteous anger, anger against sin. But let's be very honest. Don and I were talking about age earlier on, and we established we're both 21. So we've been around for a while. But our anger is normally sinful anger, isn't it? We hurt. We're jealous. We feel we've been wronged. We become angry. We want revenge. Come after me. I'll come after you. Our anger is sinful. And in Christianity, there is no room for sinful anger. The second application point is, are you angry with someone right now? Maybe this message has spoken to you. Maybe it stabbed your heart. I'm not asking if you are angry because of my sermon this morning. I'm asking whether the word of God has touched your heart and exposed some anger there in the cracks and the ravines of the heart. Exposed anger that must be dealt with. Thirdly, do you refuse to reconcile with someone? You say in your heart, but you know, God, you don't understand. You don't understand that person. You don't understand what that person has done to me. And therefore you shut the door 
on reconciliation. But here's the thing, you come to church, and maybe they do too, and you come to the Lord's table, and maybe they do too, yet your heart is hard. Is it possible? Whether you're right or wrong, is it possible that there's a problem in your heart? Is it hard? Maybe callous? Fourthly, how do you see love overshadowing relationships? Does the love of God in you flow from you? Emmanuel, God with us, God through us, flow through you to others. And the others is those you are angry with. Surely if it does, then your response needs to be spiritual and not worldly. Love and not hatred. In South Africa, when it comes to electioneering periods, and I'm in a political party, and this young man's in a political party, and I hurt him. I stand in his way of progress. I'm an obstacle to him. No problem. Tomorrow I'm dead. See, that's what the heart is like. But, you know, we're not in the world. We're not in the kingdom of this world. We are in the kingdom of God. And the governing law of the kingdom of God is love. Are you prepared to practice true love to those you are angry with or those who are angry with you? Fifthly, must you take someone aside today and forgive them or ask them to forgive you and reconcile with you? You see, maybe the Spirit of God is working this morning. And maybe this morning your heart is pliable, is available to reconcile. Not tomorrow. Tomorrow is too late. Today. Maybe your husband or wife. Maybe your parents or your children. Maybe a brother or sister in the church. Maybe a friend or colleague at work. Do you need to go and corner that person and talk to that person and make peace and reconcile with that person and forgive them and be forgiven? And then come and give God all the glory. Lastly, what is the condition of your heart like? You see, just maybe, maybe, do you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ today? Do you need to come and surrender your heart to him today? Do you need to be honest with him and admit that you are wrong, lost in sin, that your life is a mess, that things are going wrong, and that the only way out of it is to come and bow the knee before Jesus Christ and to receive him as Lord, confess your sins and repent. Do that 180 degree turn and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that unless your heart is right with God, you cannot reconcile with anyone, you cannot forgive anyone, and you cannot love anyone. Maybe in the last minute or two, if I've spoken to you and you feel you're not right with God, don't you want to find one of the elders of the church or myself or my brother Richard over there and just say, help me, pray with me. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, How scary it is that you know our hearts, our deeds, our anger and bitterness. 
You even know those we detest and hate. You know everything about us. Forgive us for our personal stupidity and sin, for our anger and hatred. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us to know you experimentally to the point where we seek holiness and protect your image and likeness in ourselves and those around us, in our family, our church, and where we work, and where we live, and where we school. And Lord, if this morning there's someone who has not bowed the knee to Jesus, may your grace find their heart even this morning as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing the hymn 55, To God Be the Glory. Are we going to sing all the verses? One and three. One and three.